Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we are continuing in the season of Lent, which is the 40-day season leading up to Easter. And today is the fifth Sunday in Lent already. And during this series, we're taking time each Sunday to focus on how Jesus suffered on his journey to the cross. And so far, we've looked at how Jesus chose to die to self and how he was abandoned, how he was misunderstood, and how he was betrayed. And today we're looking at how Jesus was condemned. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 27, verses 11 through 25, and just for a little context, this is that moment that focuses on Jesus' last trial before Pilate. It's that... uh, that last moment, his last trial before the cross. Um, it's an explosive moment. So if you want to follow along with me, um, the, the uh, verses will be up on the screen. Uh, Matthew 27, verses 11 through 25. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked, asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two, of, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, Pilate asked. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. So how did Jesus suffer in this moment? This is the question that I was asked to think about this week. And I'd like to just read my thoughts to you and invite you, as I read, to ask yourself that question too. How did Jesus suffer in this moment in front of the crowd? Jesus had stood in front of furious squalls before. He had told the wind, be quiet, and it was quiet. He had told the waves, be still, and they were still. Now he stood before a different kind of storm. He could silence this one too if he wanted to, but he didn't. During this time on this day, before Pilate in front of the crowd, Jesus would be the quiet one. He stood before a crowd of people he loved. They had turned their eyes upon Jesus, 
but not in the beautiful way, like the hymn goes. They had turned their eyes upon him like a pack of wolves locks onto a lone newborn lamb. From where he stood in front of the crowd, hands bound, cheeks still stinging red from slaps delivered by the hands of jealous priests, Jesus must have looked into the eyes that were fixed on him. In their eyes, he would have seen a hunger for violence. They were eager for him to die. Not just to die, but to die slowly and painfully. And they wanted to watch. In their eyes, he saw that they were excited to spill innocent blood. They couldn't wait for the gore and the brutality. And then, as Pilate gave them the choice between a murderer and Jesus, Jesus stood still and silent. The people he loved didn't choose him. They chanted for his execution. They condemned him altogether in a unanimous uproar. Their eyes filled with satisfaction and entitlement, as if judging was their birthright. Jesus' heart must have broken to see them be so unjust. These people who had been created to be the image bearers of God, how quickly the mob mentality could spread and thicken among them, how easily they were coerced into a guilty verdict. The Prince of Peace, and they hated him. He must have suffered greatly. And yet, we know that he still loved them. If they would have just looked into his eyes, they would have seen that his eyes were filled with compassion for them. He wanted to know them and to laugh with them, to heal them and to save them from this disease. He wanted to turn their water to wine, their mourning to dancing. He'd say, have some fish, have some bread, pick up your mat and walk, give her something to eat. My daughter, my son, my friends, your faith has healed you. You are not alone anymore. Come and sit with me. But in that moment, they were not hungry for bread or healing or company or even salvation because hate, especially in the middle of a riot, is an all-consuming fury, like a raging storm in the middle of the sea. And what hate loves the most is to watch the innocent suffer. And so Jesus, the most innocent of all, suffered. These winds this time would be allowed to rage against him these waves would be allowed to crash over him. Jesus stayed still and remained silent because he loved them. He knew that what he was about to endure would calm that storm and still that sea forever. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for standing in front of that crowd Thank you for being still when you could have shown them, <laughs> you could have given them a flashback to Mount Sinai. You could have done so many things in that moment, but you didn't. You stood still and you stood silent for us and you endured that suffering of watching the people you loved covet the judgment seat that only you can sit on. And you suffered for us. I thank you for that, Jesus. And I ask that today, as Pastor Andrew speaks, that we would remember how much you love us, 
how deeply you love us and that we would learn to turn our eyes on to you, Lord, in love. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jenny. Along with focusing on on Jesus' suffering during these six Sundays in Lent, we're also talking about um, sexuality, both the Bible's design, God's design as it's revealed to us in the Bible um, in sexuality, and then also the challenges we have in, in living, that, living that out. So I want to start with Matt, or Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. So right away, the beginning of the Bible says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, is, when asked about divorce, goes back to uh, what, he, what he says is true about marriage. Verse 19 verse 4, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus talks about, he quotes Genesis 1, he talks about this being God's design, he he quotes the one flesh, and then he restates one flesh. This is God putting two people together. And the Hebrew understanding that was true in the Old Testament and carried through to the New Testament that Christians continued to carry forward after Jesus' time is that this one flesh idea was a covenant of marriage, a lifelong commitment between two people that they would bring their lives together. And then within this covenant, this agreement, this public agreement and commitment to one another, there was also the one flesh sexual act, which consummated and reinforced and was symbolic of two lives coming together. And so sex is meant to come under the one flesh commitment of marriage. Those are things we've talked about in the past weeks. Now, today I also want to look at the ideal of it being with a man and a woman. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about male and female. We were talking about gender and trans and gender stereotypes and, and gender hatred, things like that. Um, but this week, I want to talk about marriage itself and God's design of it being between a man and a woman. And we saw in Genesis 2 that God created man and woman, and, then, and that's when he instituted marriage. And we see Jesus reinforce that talking about a man and a wife. And so the challenge to that ideal of man and woman is same-sex attraction. So uh, I'd, I'd like to start with just um, thinking about stories I have heard or read that have to do with people who have same-sex attraction. And I'm particularly thinking of people who nece haven't necessarily lived that out or um, expressed that or engaged in sexual activity, but are wrestling with same-sex attraction and then go to share that with people in the church. And so hearing stories about a teenager confiding in a youth pastor and then the youth pastor sharing that and exposing this person and then the negative ramifications that came on this young person when he thought he was safe. Or the person who works at a church and 
acknowledges, you know, I've struggled with same-sex attraction, and there are multiple stories that I hear, things like, so you can no longer work with children. In a church where there's no policies of even having background checks, but this person can no longer work with, church, with children, even though they have not um, engaged in any sexual activity nor intend to do so, they were just sharing their struggles, getting fired, being kicked out of the church, being told, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it, because when you talk about it, then you're identifying with the sin, so don't talk about it. So they're wrestling with something, but they're told, don't talk about it, you need to figure it out. Or, it's not just the church, what about the small group at, so a, a, there was a small group of women, I don't know, it was a Bible study, some sort of small group, Christian small group, and they are talking about the teenage boy that publicly came out that they know. And the mom hosting it said, if I found out my son was gay, I'd want to kill myself. Now her son happened to be walking in the hall when that happened, overheard it, and he was gay. So what does this do to his feeling of could he ever share this? So now if if the, this is the atmosphere you're in and you're carrying this, what it causes many people who are, are wanting to be Christian, they are Christian, they're trying to follow God, they feel like, I need to isolate this. I can't tell anybody. i got to be alone. There's self-loathing. There's shame. All of which, those kinds of things, fan the flames of sexual temptation. This is the reality that many have experienced in the church. Now, here's another story. This is Sam Albury's story. And I've brought up Sam, I think, at least once in this series. He's the one who wrote, What Does God Care? Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Um, he also wrote, Does God Hate Gay People? Um, he, I've read, I haven't read that one. I've read three of his books. They're all very good. Um, he had given his first sermon, he's kind of a pastor in training, given his first sermon, and so his, the lead pastor, the head pastor, wanted to talk to him about the sermon. Now, he was struggling with same-sex attraction, and he hadn't told anybody. But he said to the pastor, when the pastor set it up, the meeting up, he said, um, yeah, and there's one other thing I want to talk to you about. So a couple weeks later, they have their meeting, they go through the sermon, and the, the pastor says, and what was that other thing that you wanted to talk about? And Sam's just, oh, I wish I had never brought it up. He just feels the walls kind of closing in on him. But he just kind of mutters out, um, well, I, I'm struggling with homosexuality. And he's waiting for the fire to fall on him. And he looks up, you know, and the pastor smiles at him and says, that must have been really difficult for you to share with me. I'm so glad that you were willing to trust me and tell me about that. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. And he asks him gentle questions. How long have you noticed this? Have you ever been in love? Was that painful for you? Just ask questions. And let's talk more about this. 
what he appreciated about the pastor, I mean, for one thing, this just changed everything for him. Because now he didn't have to isolate. There was a safe place. But also the pastor didn't just talk about that with him. Like, they could continue to do other things, interact in other ways. It wasn't like an all-consuming thing, but it was a safe place. So how about the contrast of the examples I gave first with how this pastor responded? What is the better way for a church to respond? And when I say a church, I mean the people, you, me. What's the best way for us to respond? And I wanted to say that because I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about same-sex attraction, and I'm going to answer some questions that I get a lot or I know are there about, about this. It's from a pastoral perspective. So I'll be doing a lot of talking. I mean, I'm up here. I'm talking. But I think what's really important is that when we're um, with people who are same-sex attracted or, or trying to share, we listen. That if we are that person, we're, we find safe, trusted people, and we do share. But if they choose you, will you listen? And this is really true about all our sexual struggles. The ones that we are most ashamed of, it is so good to be able to bring it out into the open and be met with grace. Grace, appropriate truth, but lots of grace and listening. And that's just not what we're very good at. And so we isolate and hide and that, that is a good uh, seedbed for more sin to grow, for it to be harder to overcome our struggles. A couple other things before I get into more of what the Bible has to say. One is that you know, there is such thing as the gay agenda. And um, what that means now, though, could mean lots of different things. You know, I'm thinking back 20, 30, 40 years ago, when there was a group of people who were very um, intentional about a strategy so that accepting uh, gay relationships would become mainstream. The strategy had a lot to do with the media and how it would work. And from their perspective, I'm, I'm thinking about a book, I don't, I don't know the book, I can't quote it, but I'm thinking about a book where one of the leaders said, one of the goals was to eradicate the wickedness of injustice against gay people. Gay people have been treated unjustly, cruelly. And so there, is a, there was a desire, part of the desire was just to eliminate that. Well, the Bible's against injustice. There's also a political agenda Going back again, 20, 30, 40 years, the religious right, the moral majority that wants to eliminate the wickedness of immorality. Well, the Bible is against immorality, sexual immorality. We've looked at lots of passages several weeks ago about what the Bible says about sexual immorality. But I want to bring that up because these, become these are very political movements and then it's hard for us to look at this without the lens of political in there, or at least some of us, maybe many of us, without even knowing it, probably. And so what I'd like to do is just acknowledge, like, God is a, 
is against injustice. God is against immorality. When we politicize it, though, we tend to depersonalize it. And instead of the wickedness of injustice or the wickedness of immorality, which I think we all contribute to, probably in ways we don't even know, it becomes the wickedness of those people or the wickedness of those people. Those people are wicked. That's not, that's not how the Bible is talking about people. There is wickedness, I guess the Bible does talk about, but the Bible talks about people being made in God's image. The Bible talks about people that are worth Jesus coming to earth for and dying for. And so I'd like us to look at this like we're all people in this and not through the political uh, lenses. Additionally, just in terms of terminology, I'm aware that um, just calling people homosexuals is not often a um, as sensitive way to talk about people. For one thing, it's, it's pretty imprecise. So as a person, a homosexual, in some people's mind, that would mean that they're actively engaging in sexual activity, whereas they might just be saying this is their attraction level. So it is a, it's a clinical term. It can be, it's, there's nothing wrong with using it, but it's often not, not felt well or, or received well. So it's one that I will, you know, I, I used it when I just told the story because I was retelling Sam's story in his words. Um, but that's, it's not a phrase that I use very often anymore. Um, gay, queer, those, these are, are terms that people prefer to be used if they identify that way. Some people have issues with using those. Some people have issues using same-sex. I'm going to use same-sex attraction, but I just want to acknowledge there's difficulties with whichever term you use because there could be some baggage with it. Similarly, and I'm almost going to get to the Bible here, but similarly, um, what do you call a person who believes that the Bible says same-sex marriage is okay compared to a person who says the Bible says same-sex, the, the same-sex marriage is not okay? So... Uh, there could be traditional, some would use traditional, meaning same-sex marriage is not okay, and some would use progressive. Some would use non-affirming and then affirming. Um, I'm going to use affirming, even though I don't, what I don't like about that term is that it would mean that I'm not affirming the, it could be interpreted, I'm not affirming the person. I'm just not affirming the position that same-sex marriage is biblical. So that would be affirming. And then um, I'm going to use historical for people that would say the biblical view of marriage is that it's between a man and woman and not same sex. And I, I use historical because this has not been a controversial issue for 2,000 years in any denominations, in any part of the country or world, I mean, any cultures, any skin color. This has not been controversial where people say, I believe the Bible wholeheartedly and want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and believe that the Bible allows for marriage between uh, two people of the same sex. That's just historically that has not been true. It's a pretty recent phenomenon. But people are, but I have interacted with lots of people who sincerely believe in Jesus or trying to follow the Bible and are saying that 
are coming to the conclusion that there's a way that you can look at the Bible and say it's okay. That's not historically been the case, and I don't believe it to be the case, but so historic versus affirming of same-sex marriage. With that, we are going to look at every passage on homosexuality. I'll use that term. Every one. All five of them. So this is such a huge issue. It's not like it's filled the Bible. Some people would say six. They would count the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to count that because for just a few reasons. One is there's a lot going on in that story. And really what it looks like they're doing, they want to bring the men out to have sex with them, but it's like a gang rape situation. So that really doesn't tell us much about monogamous same-sex marriage. The other thing is that if you look at other parts of the Old Testament, they will bring up Sodom or Gomorrah, and they will talk about what was wrong there. And they will, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you hear about idolatry, you hear about injustice, you hear about gluttony. But those passages don't say anything about sexuality. So to use that as, to use Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it just doesn't seem like the right passage to use. So let's look at the first two. They're from Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death their blood will be on their own heads. Now, one of the responses to these passages, I think these passages are pretty straightforward. Two two men having sex with one another, the Bible's saying, is is not okay. Um, But just a pretty obvious response would be like, it's in Leviticus. We're going to follow everything in Leviticus? We gonna wear clothing made of multiple fabrics? We gonna eat shellfish? We gonna, I mean, you can give example after example. So what is the response? Is the response that Leviticus no longer has anything to say to us? Well, let me, let me explain something about the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah. That is in there, there are commands that have to do with ceremonial, the ceremonial law. So this would get into worship. This would get into cultural identity markers as God's people, the Jewish people. There is also the civil law. This would get into how they were to govern their people. They were a nation. Like the Jewish people became a nation and God laid down laws for that nation. And then there's the moral law. This would be things that are just true to humanity that continue to be true to humanity. Now, what we know about the ceremonial law is that Jesus fulfilled much of the ceremonial law. So he was the once and for all sacrifice, so all the commands about we need to sacrifice bulls or goats for this or that, we don't need to do anymore. It talks about in Hebrews because he has satisfied all the things that those sacrifices were pointing to. We don't need the priests anymore. All kinds of rules about the priests. Also, there is a way in which So that is clearly in the New Testament says, these were things that were pointing to Jesus, but no longer do we need to do. 
And we could still learn from them. Why did they do that? What could we learn from that? What did it point to? What does it teach us about Jesus? Or what does it just teach us about worship? Or, so all of those things could still be helpful to us, but we don't follow them the same way they did pre-Jesus. Similarly, there's a lot of things that say this is what it means to be Jew. The dietary laws. Don't eat pork. Don't do, well, those were boundary markers for Jewish people. It's a very healthy diet. If you follow the Old Testament prescription of a diet, it's a very healthy diet. But in Acts, it talks about, Peter, don't call the animals that are clean, unclean. Like, doesn't apply anymore. You can eat what you want to eat. It's in the New Testament. Furthermore, what's in the New Testament is that uh, um, Gentiles do not have to become Jewish. They don't need to do the cultural Jewish things. In Acts, they have a big council and they say, hey, we're not going to make the Gentiles do it, but we're just going to have like four things we want the Gentiles to keep track of. One of them being sexual immorality. We do want them to keep sexual immorality. But that was, that was different. Now, similarly, the civil law was for a people at that time, when nation states were different, when all of that that was a theocracy, where God was the king, intended to be the king, and this was the nation. In the New Testament, talking to people living in the Roman Empire, it talks about how we relate to the, the government in Romans chapter 13, among other places. But it also says our citizenship isn't ultimately on, in this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're part of God's kingdom, and, and Jesus didn't come. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we are... Uh, allegiant to Jesus, and we try to bring good about in the country we find ourselves, or the government we find ourselves, but we, and we can learn from the Old Testament, here's what's true about the civil law, but we don't take all of those things and just say, we're going to have to follow them all. So then the question is, is, are these two passages ceremonial law, or civic law, or moral law? Well, I would say they're one of them is partially civic law, capital punishment, like to execute. There's other things you're ex getting executed for in, in Leviticus, but that was the governmental law. I'm not going to get into why capital punishment and why not and all of that. I'm just saying that would be civic law. But the other aspects of it, the aspect of whether two people of the same sex should be a, are, are allowed or encouraged in the Bible to come together in sexual relations, I think, does carry forward. And we can't just throw out Leviticus. Here's what else is in, so I should say quickly, there's multiple teachings in the Bible that are a collection. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it's a collection of teaching and you understand it as it goes through. Um, scholars are pretty clear, pretty unanimous, Leviticus 18, I wouldn't say unanimous, but most would say Leviticus 18 through 20 would, is a collection of writings. It's different than a lot of other parts of Leviticus. Here's what else is in Leviticus 18 through 20. No incest, no adultery, no bestiality, no making your daughter a prostitute. These are all things I think we would be wise to continue. It doesn't just talk about sexual issues. Leviticus 18 20 also talks about no child sacrifice, no theft, no lying, no slander, no partiality in court, no turning to witches or sorcery. 
also, I think, good things to continue to apply. And right in the middle of it, it gets 18 through 20, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think we should throw that one out. Jesus didn't think we should throw that one out because he quoted it as summarizing. Actually, Leviticus is quoted in the New Testament quite a bit, particularly this verse, but in other places as well. So we don't just throw out Leviticus, but we have to have discernment which things carry forward. I would say that this would, and that leads to the, this is something that does carry forward. Now, that leads to one of the three New Testament passages we're going to look at. So from 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. This is what it says. It says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, And for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, what is translated, the Greek words translated practicing homosexuality are Greek words that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but at Jesus' time, it it already had been translated into Greek. And it, it is a compound word that are two Greek words that are used in the Leviticus passages we just read. So there is a, it's not a Greek word that's used very often, and so there can be, that's one of the affirming um, rationales as they're getting at, we don't really know what this term means, it's used so infrequently, but it is connecting Paul, who probably has the Old Testament memorized and is constantly bringing it in, uses these words, these Greek words, from the Leviticus passage. Additionally, just so you you know, if we go back to verse 9, Adam, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, remember, it's talking about the proper use of the law. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. For murderers, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. For the sexually immoral, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But just to clarify about that, so any sexual morality defined in the Bible is any sexual activity outside of marriage. But also, just to be clear, for those practicing homosexuality would also be included, he's he's subtly referencing the Leviticus passage, that applies still. For slave traders... The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, that's stealing of people, and liars and perjurers. The Ninth Commandment, you shouldn't bear false testimony against your neighbor. So it is, I think this passage is clearly reinforcing what has been said from the beginning about what marriage is and where sex should take place. The Corinthians passage. The Corinthians passage is chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Um, you know, this, the Timothy passage or the 1 Corinthians passage, I've been in rooms where we're talking about these issues. I'm thinking of my past denominational days. And so people are sharing different things and someone will, it seems like, invariably get up and read one of these passages. You know, and they'll be reading along, you know, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor, 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 nor slanderers, nor swindlers. And it's like they get done, mic drop. As if that shows it. I feel like what this shows is like, boy, there's a lot of sin out there. This is one of many options. Like both those passages are not just getting at one thing. And that's what we are unless we get Jesus, unless he washes and justifies us. Anyway, this particular passage, also one of the things that the affirming position might say is that, well, in the Greek culture, Roman culture at the time, a common practice was for men to have sex with boys or male prostitutes, or, and it's talking about this power dynamic. It's talking about this power dynamic. The, the literal translations of the word here would be like the, the active participant in the sexual act and the receiving or passive participant in the sexual act. And there are a lot of other language available if you are talking about the power dynamic. But this seems to be saying that both people would be responsible because um, it names them both. We have it translated here, men who have sex with men, getting both, both men involved. Um, but I, I just don't think it's the power... There'd be a way to say it clearly if it was about the power dynamic. Of course, the power dynamic is wrong, and we say, of course, because, but just so you know, in the Roman world, it's not, of course. It's totally fine to have sex with the slave, sex with the boy, sex with multiple people. That was just normal. That was okay. It's not until we have the Christian ethic and the Christian ethic starts to influence culture that they say, no, that's not okay. Anyway, one last passage from Romans. Romans chapter 1 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, there's multiple things to be noted in this. One is, again, it's not power dynamics. Like, if you involve women, women had no power in that cultural time. All the other passages seem to be explicitly um, articulating men. This actually does include women as well uh, in the prohibition against same-sex relations. Now, an affirming position might say it is... But it would be unnatural for a gay person to have sex or to marry someone of the opposite sex. I think that's a, that's a fair point to make. But in this passage, it is pretty clear that that's not the point the passage is making. If we were to read earlier, what we will see multiple times is creator, references to the creation. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped Christ created things rather than their creator, the context is getting us in mind with creation and created order itself. 
And that is where there's man and woman. And I think it's pretty clear that this is talking about men having sex with men or women having sex with women is unnatural compared to the created order in God's design. But what also should be said about the context of this passage is that this is a long argument from Romans 1 to Romans chapter 3 that starts with the pagan world, the godless or the many-godded, you know, many gods, but not the one true God. And it starts with how they miss the mark. And that's the section we're in. They miss the mark. They're not following God's way that they're to live. But then it moves on in Romans chapter 2 to the moral people, the good people. Maybe religious, maybe not religious, but they're good moral people. But it says, you don't hit the mark. And then it goes on to the religious people, specifically the Jewish people. And it says, you know, you're... you're uh, being named, your circumcision, you're having the, the word of God. None of these things by themselves, these exterior things, are what make you right before God. If you aren't following God wholeheartedly, then you are not. And if you don't, then it gets to this culmination where it just says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in this passage where people can often like bring it out, like a club to beat people with, we just need to know the whole passage is, is meant to say like, none of us can stand before God. None of us. All right. One other point I want to make is that in multiple, well, throughout the New Testament, and I'm thinking like after the Gospels of Jesus, it talks about wives and husbands. And oftentimes talks about sort of a different role or differentiation between Wives and husbands. That would be true in 1 Corinthians. That would be true in Ephesians. That would be true in Colossians. That would be true in 1 Timothy. That would be true in Titus. There's a way in which it talks about wives and husbands, which would be woman and man. And in Ephesians, it talks about how husbands and wives are a reflection of Christ and the church. Like Just like male and female give together can uh, reflect the image of God, so also husbands and wives there's the opportunity for God to use that as a picture of what it means to be the church and us to be his bride. So, why do I say that? Well, now I'm just going to go through some questions. Isn't, isn't this like slavery or issues related to women where the church may have gotten it wrong? So that's a fair question. I think the difference is there is much in the Bible that talks about slavery being wrong. Now, there are ways that Christians have used passages in the Bible to condone slavery, but what slavery looked like back then, what the world looked like back then, was very different. And still, God would say, if you're going to have a slave, you've got to let them free at this point. Don't forget that I saved you out of slavery from Egypt. There's an entire book of the Bible in Philemon, which is about you should free your slave. But it's also written to people who couldn't just free themselves in the Roman Empire. And so that's why we do have some passages of this is how you're supposed to do slavery. So that's slavery. Um, women, there's, that's a complex thing in the Bible. Like, can women be in leadership? Can women? Te- well, what do you mean by leadership? Because we certainly see examples of women in leadership in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's also some passages that make it a little, well, what does this mean? Why, why aren't we allowing a woman to teach? Why does that say that in this passage? But there is information both ways. There are examples both ways in the Bible of women leading, of women teaching, of women leaders, but also these some passages that are a little more challenging. That is not 
what is true in, in the Bible about same-sex union. There is nowhere... It, it, you can look at some of these passages and say, well, this passage doesn't say in itself that gay marriage wouldn't be okay. True. But when we're starting, when the starting point is that marriage is to be between a man and a woman from Genesis, and it's reinforced by Jesus, and there is zero passages that seem to open up the door to undo that, then I think we're safest to stick with that. Okay, a few more questions. Are people born gay? Let me read from the American Psychological Association. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cult cultural, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. So this is kind of saying like, well, the, I don't know that there's a gay gene, but there may be something in the genetics that would lean a person that way. There may be things that happen in a person's life that would Im impact them. Um, but in general, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery, but most people, it's not something that they've chosen. That's not how they experience it. And I think that's important because a lot of times the church acts like, well, there must be something wrong with you. You just need to choose differently. And that's just not how people are experiencing it. Can people change their orientation would be the next question. Well, um, for one thing, not everyone who has same-sex attraction would say they totally identify as, as only same-sex attracted. Like there's bisexual, there is like I'm mainly the other, but not, there's a lot of experimentation that happens more so with women. There can be more of a spectrum on this. Now there are many people who just one or the other, but there also, there's also some combination of that. So I think that should be stated. There, here's where I'm at for um, my beginning of my ministry. I really thought that the answer to this was almost always yes. And I no longer think that. I think that many sincere Christians have prayed, have sought help, have tried to uh, be changed and, and be straight, and they haven't experienced that. And I've been really, really blessed, inspired, impacted by the testimonies of people who are gay or who would say they're same-sex attracted and are just saying, but I'm committed to following Jesus and the Bible, and so I am not going to, I'm not going to get into gay ro uh, romantic relationships. They either are going to stay celibate or some go into mixed orientation marriages where the person knows that they are primarily same-sex attracted, but they still choose to be in that. So... At the same time, I, I know people that, to at least a degree, maybe even a significant degree, would testify that it, they have changed. Their orientation has changed. God has done a work. But to pressure someone to think that that's the norm or the expectation, and if it doesn't happen, something's wrong with them, is hard. Or to try to have them um, convert 
when that's not what they're motivated to do, I don't think that that is, is very helpful. Is, is a gay orientation sinful, would be another question. Um, well, there's a propensity to do things that are not according to God's design. That is true in all of us, and that is true of many things. But to simply acknowledge that you're attracted to the same sex, and that's just how you normally experience life, I don't think that that is sin. I mean, I'm attracted to females. Would that mean I'm attracted to a lot of people that aren't my wife? If I admit that I'm attracted to females, am I in sin? I mean, I don't think so. But it's worth bringing up because many have heard from the church just that. That because they're gay or say they're gay, there is something wrong with them. And to even bring that up in an honest way is to be agreeing with the sin. When all people are trying to do is just to be honest about how they're experiencing life. What about the church's hypocrisy when it comes to the treatment of people in the LGBTQ community? Well, yes, the church has condoned all kinds of joking and ridicule. The church has done lots of things. One of the things that we talked about last week was just the inconsistency where the church would say, well, we're going to view these sins this way, this one, or even these sexual sins get more of a pass than anything that's um, about same-sex attracted. So yes, and we should, re we should repent for that. I'm just, I'm needing to go quickly. How about this one? Here, I've heard this a lot. Love is love. Why would we prevent someone from being with the person they love? Well, biblically speaking, it's oversimplistic to say love is love. Because what we translate love, to the English word love, from the Bible is multiple different words. On Easter Sunday, I'm going to give an example of this. But we could be talking about friendship love. We could be talking about erotic love. We could be talking about romantic love. We could be talking about covenant-keeping love. There are different words that they're using in Hebrew or Greek for love. And so, eros love is not agape love. They're not all the same. And what I mentioned last week, talking about straight people... It's just the Bible does not say marriage is to be based on romantic love or being in love. There's arranged marriages in the Bible. It's not saying that it can't be part of the equation. I mean, I'm, I'd rather have that be part of the equation. But it is not what, what is important about marriage and sex fitting into marriage is covenant-keeping love. A love that will do good for the other and stay committed to the other even when it's hard. Isn't it cruel to force people to be single? Well, I mean, it, if you're straight and you aren't married, then you're going to be single. If, oh, and a point of further, or of the last question, if, if I'm to fall in love with another female, I don't think the answer is I leave Camille and go to that female. So anyway, I, sh I distracted myself with that. But um, so 
Isn't it cruel? I would, I think that is the option. Mixed orientation or staying celibate single if you're gay. I don't know that it's, I'm not the one who's trying to force them. I'm saying what the Bible says, but I do think we should have compassion for people. What is it like to be wanting to follow Jesus sincerely and the Bible sincerely and to have it mean I can't be with someone that I love and am attracted to? It's got to be really hard. And I want to be compassionate about that. And that's different than even someone who is single, but they could, because they're attracted to people of the opposite sex, they could get into a marriage and it be um, biblically acceptable. So I think compassion is, is huge and a sense of family for all single people. God calls us to be his family. Only a couple more, three more, I think. How do we affirm the person without approving the lifestyle? And this may be the question I've received the most over the years because we have family members who are gay and we're trying to, how do we do this? And I don't have a prescriptive answer. Um, I would just say that the closer we are to a person, the more they'll know, or we should be able to allow them in appropriate, pretty natural ways to know where we where we think the, what we think the Bible says or Jesus leads us to in sexuality and particularly same-sex marriage. So I think that they'll know. But what we want to make sure they know is that we love them. Right? We love them. And it's pretty sad that people feel like they're just totally cut off from their family or from Christian people because of that. I get that we don't want to um, affirm, and as a church, you know, we aren't going to do same-sex weddings. We aren't going to have people who are in same-sex relationships in leadership. There are ways in which we aren't, we aren't going to affirm to that extent, but to love the person, I think, is, is pretty important. Is same-sex sexual sin worse than other sins? No, certainly we've treated it as such. But to go back to week one in this series, when we were talking about, I was um, mainly addressing straight heterosexual sin, the Bible does say not all sins, the consequences and the impact of all sin is not the same. The church's response to all sin is not the same if we're going to follow what the Bible says. And often I give the example, more extreme, but you know, I can murder someone with my tongue and that's very damaging. <clears throat> but if I actually, you know, it's like, but if I actually kill them, that's a whole nother set of consequences. And I'm not here to say I understand the different set of consequences. I'm just here to say the Bible talks about the consequences of sin differently. But as I said before, when these passages are coming up, they are demonstrating that we're all sinful and we're all broken. Not that it's somehow worse to be gay or same-sex attracted. Last question from these pastoral questions. Do gay people go to hell? Well, people don't go to heaven because they're straight. 
That's not what gets a person to heaven. Right? So sexual sin of any kind is bad for our souls and can be bad for our relationships. But what we need is Jesus. Doesn't matter if we're gay or straight. Or we need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And so, let's get going towards a conclusion. What is Jesus' response? Jesus was rejected and condemned as many gay people have been by the church. He understands that. And he is there to welcome people. But Jesus also, let me just, here's how Jesus lived this out. He gave Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where he like took everything up a notch. Like you've thought just external behaviors are good. I'm telling you, it's from the heart. It's how you live, including sexual sin. Jesus did not specifically talk about same-sex relations, but he did talk about like lust is where you got to go after it to get started. And sexual immorality, any sex outside of marriage is not okay. He said those things. So he had this super high bar. And he gave this super high bar, Matthew 5, 7, in every area of life. And the people were like, this is awesome because he actually lives it. And then the very next chapter is him going to a leper who everybody at that time would say, no, they don't, can't be in a religious thing with them. They don't, and he goes right up to him and touches him. And then he goes right after that, the very next story, to a Roman soldier who, again, at the time, they say, nope, can't go by him, can't include him, he can't be part of it. And he says, you have faith like no one I've ever seen. All the religious people, your faith is... And a little bit later, he is with Matthew, the tax collector, which everyone is saying, like, nope, nope, we don't associate with tax collectors. We can't partner with tax collectors. And he goes and eats with them. And they wanted to eat with him. And the prostitutes wanted to eat with him. Somehow Jesus never lowered the standard of what sin was, but had so much love that everybody still wanted to be with him, except for people that were self-righteous. Man, he's amazing. Can we put the picture that Jenny had up there again? We'll have the worship team come up. So then last question, what is our response? I would say two things. One is we want to be like Jesus. Don't lower the bar. Lowering the bar is not, that's not the, the answer. We want to live as Jesus designed us to live. But with so much love, I'm thinking about a person who's gay, who asked me to pray for him on a regular basis, and he would introduce me to people as his pastor. But he said to me, I would never go to a church. When I drive past a church, I start shaking. I'm afraid of the church. If we could be like Jesus, that would not be true. That would not be true. So lastly, in our response, I think 
And it's really helpful for us all to remember that we are sinners. People will feel self-righteousness and judgment. But if we remember, we need Jesus. We need Jesus, so we keep turning to him. We're all broken. We keep turning to him. He cleanses us and fills us with his love as we do. Let's pray. So God, we do repent. First of all, as Christians who have caused hurt or pain to those in the LGBTQ community, especially those who are gay, I'm thinking of this morning. Would you forgive us? Would you help us to love well? To welcome people well? We just pray that we also would be quick to see and know our own sin, our own ways that miss the mark, and to turn back to you. The one who was rejected so that we could be accepted, was condemned so that we could be acquitted. The one who welcomes us and forgives us and loves us. Remind us now in these moments of what it means that you love us even in the middle of the sense that while we were still sinners, you died for us because you loved us and you still love us and you'll always love us. In Jesus' name, amen.